And our passage this morning comes from Hebrews. Uh, we've been following along with the lectionary. We've been in the Old Testament for most of the summer. And now we take a shift. Um, and actually, this is a really great passage to shift with because it's a New Testament passage that is all about the Old Testament. <laughs> uh, so we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, the latter part of Hebrews, for the next, uh, the next four weeks, looking at what does it look like to live this life of faith. And so this is a passage this morning that spends a lot of uh, time answering that question by looking back. So let's read together. It'll be on the screen. You can pull out your Bible. You can look at your phone. Or if you have it memorized, you can recall it from memory. Hebrews 11. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were living by faith, by faith, when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country that they had left, they would have had opportunity to return, but instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. Would you be our teacher this morning? We want to hear from you. Grow our faith. Make us into people whose lives reflect a deep faith in you by the power of your spirit. We ask this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's see if I can get this up to the right height. We live, uh, we live in an age that loves data or data. 
depending on, I don't know, that depends on where you're from or how you say that, what industry you're in maybe. But I, I can't think of an industry or a vocation that doesn't rely heavily on data and refer back to data, information, quantifiable information. It becomes this, uh, this ace in our sleeve, right, when we're making decisions. Well, we've got data to back us up. Uh, Summer and I, we were talking about this. We both have fathers uh, whom we dearly love. Uh, but also fathers who uh, have been proponents of making pro and con lists. I don't know if this is how you make decisions uh, or how you've been encouraged to make decisions, but definitely there's times where, you know, whether you're choosing a college, trying to discern uh, what job to take, uh, trying to discern potential spouse, where we've been encouraged to make pro and con lists. And uh, Summer and I, for those of you that know us, we're very different people. But we're very similar, at least in terms of how we make decisions. Um, I'm about to get nerdy for just a second on the Enneagram, if any of you are into the Enneagram. But uh, I'm a nine, I'm a peacemaker. Summer's a one, she's a reformer. But we're both part of the Enneagram graph uh, that represent people that are more likely to make decisions based on their gut. They kind of instinctually sense kind of the way to go. And it's not that we, it's not that we disregard data. Um, it's just that we're, we're more likely to, to make a decision kind of out of our gut. Um, so when I was making a list about whether or not to marry Summer, I was like, so on the one hand, she's really smart. But on the other hand, she's really beautiful. And so I just threw the data out and I just went with my gut. No? Thank you, yeah. So here's where I'm going with this. <laughs> Maybe I should bring this together here. It's not that, it's not that there's a rejection of, of data or of input, right? It's just that there's another layer of data that we're paying attention to. We're kind of listening to how our gut is feeling, how our, how our instinct is responding in a given situation. And I think that there's a little bit of that that the author of Hebrews is doing here in chapter 11. Uh, there is clearly observable uh, reality, right? The, the stuff that we can experience with our five senses. Um, but there is another layer of data, another layer of reality that is deeper and more substantive even than the stuff that we can see or taste or hear or touch or smell. So the author of Hebrews is saying, this is what it means to live a life of faith. It's to live your life based on this other layer of data that we can't uh, quantify, maybe in the same way that we can uh, this, this, this other uh, area of reality that we can taste and measure and all that. And this reality is God. This is the reality that people of faith base their lives on, that they make decisions out of that they set the trajectory of their life based on the reality of God. So let me back up just a little bit because we're kind of dropping into the middle of a book here in Hebrews. Uh, we don't really know who the author of Hebrews is. Some people think it's Paul, but I'm just going to refer to this person as the author of Hebrews. Um, writing this letter to early Christians, and there's some sense that they are probably Jewish Christians. Like there's an assumed knowledge of the story of the Old Testament. And, and you, you heard that in our passage today, right? I mean, it's just a, a list of all these famous characters from the Old Testament. 
And the author of Hebrews spends the first 10 chapters essentially saying Jesus is better than all of that. Right? Not, not discounting, not, not throwing all of this away, but just saying, you know, we had this sacrificial system. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. We had all of these priests. Jesus is the perfect priest. Uh, we had these prophets. Jesus is the perfect prophet. Jesus is better than all of these systems, all of this religious system that we have inherited. Jesus is better. So then we get to the last couple of chapters where we'll be for these next couple of weeks. Um, and it, 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 we're more engaged in the question of, well, how do we live then this life of faith in Jesus if he is better than all these other religious systems, all these other things that have been put in place? How do we live a life that is, has a confidence, a deep confidence in who Jesus is? There's, there's a sense as well, too, that the, that the author of Hebrews is trying to prepare his readers for a life of difficulty. Not a life of, of victorious ease and comfort, but a life of, of hardship, a life of persecution. And so, starting in chapter 11, where we were today, there's this turning point, and there's a, a definition of faith, and then there's all these examples of people in the Old Testament who have lived by faith. And we know that these are not perfect people, right? We know enough about most of them to know that, uh, you know, they are not perfect examples of uh, these sinless humans. Um, they messed up all over the place. And yet, what they are known for, what they are remembered for, are these, these moments in their lives where they made decisions, where they, they, they set their trajectory and, the, and the, the aim of their life on God in faith. And that's what the author is highlighting here. So there's this beautiful definition of faith, which I, I'm going to kind of gloss over it, but it's worth a lot of chewing and uh, reflection. The faith is the confidence, or also it could be referred to as the substance. It's something solid. It's the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance, the certainty about those things that we cannot see. There's a tension there right? A confidence, a, a substance um, of something that we hope for. It's not ours yet. Uh, and then a certainty and an assurance of something that we can't even see. There's a solidness to the reality of God and of God's promises. Things that we can't necessarily sense with our five, sense, our five senses. The message uh, has that first verse this way. The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. This is faith. And then with that, uh, the author goes into this, really what I've come to call the four-chapter story of Scripture. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this way of thinking about the whole of Scripture, but there is a way of, of looking at Scripture as this unfolding narrative that kind of happens in these four big chapters. And the chapters are this. It's creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation or the restoration of all things. And this is actually, this, this whole chapter, these two chapters we're going to look at over the next few weeks is a beautiful summary of that whole story starting with creation, then the fall early in Genesis, 
then the the rest or the um, the redemption that we have in Christ that all of the prophets and the law point to in the Old Testament that we see uh, fully fleshed out in the person of Jesus Christ, and then the future hope that we all share of the restoration of all things, God making all things new, heaven coming to earth. And we get glimpses of that in just this little bit that we read here in Hebrews 11. So right, the beginning point, the starting point of faith is simply a belief that, that God exists and that he made everything. Everything that has been made has been made by a good, loving God. Uh, a number of years ago, when the Green Bean was in its first location, the coffee shop that we uh, used to run, uh, Summer started a, an a evening event there called Conversations That Matter. Conversation, was that what it was called? Something like that? And it was just posing kind of some introduction questions to the faith that anyone could engage with. And the first one that she posed was, is there more to life than what we see? Is there more to reality than we can experience with our senses. That's it. And just kind of left that as the open-ended question and led to a really robust discussion. Um, because if, if, if you can't go there, then it becomes hard to talk about faith in God. <laughs> but there has to be this starting point of at least acknowledging there's probably more to this life than what I can see, taste, smell. And, and surveys consistently bear that out, that most people, whether they're religious or not, most people believe that there is, in fact, more to life than what we can just see or touch or experience with our five senses. So then the follow-on question is like, okay, well, what is that? Right? What, what, what does that look like, that more than the things that we can just experience with our senses? And faith answers that at the heart of reality is a loving, creative God who made the world and everything in it and called it that's the starting point for the life of faith. And then come uh, all these stories. And I, I don't know if you heard sort of this, uh, this rhythm that the author gets into where he says, by faith, and then so-and-so did this. By faith, so-and-so did this. Right? Uh, this, uh, this chapter is sometimes called the Hall of Faith, right? Kind of a play on the Hall of Fame. Um, now, again, we know the characters that are in there are, you know, in some ways infamous uh, for their, their exploits, right? You've got, you've got David, you've got Abraham, you've got Moses, people who were uh, clearly wonderful examples of faith, but also who were deeply broken people. Moses was a murderer who also led God's people out of slavery into freedom. David was an adulterous murderer who is described as a man after God's own heart. So I hope that part of what we take away this morning is some comfort in this list of very imperfect people, all of whom are commended for their faith. That you and I, uh, though we are deeply imperfect and deeply flawed, uh, also can be people of deep faith. Those are not mutually exclusive. So... As the author starts to go through uh, all this list of characters and, and, you know, by faith, they made these decisions. They lived this way. They made these choices. Um, I, one of the things that struck me is that some of the things that they are choosing are, are very odd. Some of the decisions that they're making in their lives are, are peculiar. It reminded me of, of Peter's description of God's people as a peculiar people. Uh, our faith 
uh, may lead us to make decisions that look odd in light of the world's priorities and values. We may look strange. It may, the decisions that we make based on our faith in God and our trust in his promises might be questioned by some of our neighbors. In fact, maybe that's one way of, of uh, some, some of the hallmarks of decisions made out of faith is their peculiar nature, their oddness. But what gives us the strength and the confidence to make these strange decisions, to make decisions about our finances uh, that are not solely about putting as much away as possible for our future to, uh, to account for every possible occurrence, but rather we, we're generous with our finances. That's odd. That's peculiar. Um, but what gives us the motivation to do that, the author says, are the promises of God. The things that God has said that I will do for my people. The things that are coming in the future for us, for those who are God's people. I was thinking about different things that, um, I mean, Scripture's full of the promises of God. I could make a long list, but I just pulled out a couple that uh, kind of were at the top of my brain, and I realized, oh, they kind of deal with past, present, and, and, and future. Um, in the past, right? First uh, John one nine. Uh, if we confess our sins, then He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of God's promises to us is that our sins do not define us; that He removes them from us as far as the east is from the west. Our past does not define us and cannot. That's one of the promises of God. Another one uh, from Second Peter one four. Uh, through these things, he, God has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. This is present tense. That, that right now, in Christ, you and I are new creations. That's your identity. That's a promise that God has made to you and to me. We are, present tense, new creations participants in the divine nature. Amazing. And then you heard a little bit of the future in Hebrews 11, where the author is talking about this city that these people have been longing for, that God has made for his people, a future home, right? A place where we can finally rest, where everything will be provided, where there will be no more sickness, death, pain, sorrow, no more tears. This is the future that God has promised us. These are the promises of God that, are, that give us the fuel to then live right now in the present a life of faith, to make decisions that might seem odd, peculiar to this world. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. This is a classic uh, Christian uh, novel isn't quite the right word. It's an allegory. It's an allegory for the Christian faith. John Bunyan wrote this, and he tells the story of Christian on this pilgrimage, on this journey, and through it uh, describes kind of what the life of faith, what the journey of faith for all Christians looks like, and the temptations, and the challenges, and the struggles, and the hopes. Um, 
And uh, I, I read this. I probably read this. My, my mom probably read this over the breakfast table to us. This is where we got our theological education growing up, was over the breakfast table through Narnia, the Narnia series. And I'm sure that this is one that she would have read as well. Uh, but I read it again in college. And the one thing that I recall from uh, a lecture and discussion on this book was the, the unique way that John Bunyan thinks of promises. Uh, promises are quite literally the key. So in this allegory, Christian finds himself in Doubting Castle um, in deep despair. Uh, he's, he's strayed from the path, he's gone off course, and he's in Doubting Castle, and he's been there for days, and he's getting beaten by this giant, um, oh goodness, yeah, giant despair. Giant despair of Doubting Castle. Not too subtle what he's trying to go for here, but... Uh, he's been there for days, and then um, just before Sunday, this is, uh, this is what Bunyan writes. A little bit before it was day, good Christian, now Christian's the main character here, as one half amazed, he broke out in a passionate speech. What a fool, said he, what a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk in liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Well, then said Hopeful, Hopeful's his companion, that's good news, good brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. So Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease. And Christian and Hopeful both came out, and then he went to the outward door that leads to the castle yard, and with the key opened that door also. And after this, he went to the iron gate, for that must be opened too, but that lock went damnable hard, but the key did open it. And they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed. But that gate, as it opened, made such a creaking that it woke up giant despair, who, hastily rising to pursue his prisoners, felt his limbs fail, for his fits took him again, so he could no longer go after them. And they went on. They came to the king's highway again, and they were safe. So for Bunyan, the... The key, again, literally, <laughs> in his allegory, the key is promise. God's promises, reminding ourselves of them, steeping ourselves in what God has promised us, allows us to live this life of faith. It's the fuel for these, these decisions, these, uh, this discernment that we make that may seem odd. Or, for, for Bunyan, it's the fuel that breaks us free from doubt and discouragement and despair to remind ourselves of the promises of God. I think uh, it's, it's powerful to me, also, the way that the author of Hebrews uh, is making a case for this life of faith by telling stories, just by presenting all of these people that we're familiar with, but just describing how they have made these decisions, how they have uh, oriented their life towards God as an act of faith. And I am struck by that because I think that that is what we need each other for, right? We need each other to be able to hear and tell stories uh, and to seek advice when we're facing decisions that, uh, that we can be these examples of faith to each other. 
I think that's one of the, the beautiful things about uh, the nature of Christian community in the church, that, that we, we need each other's stories. We need to simply know each other's lives. That's a big goal in our community groups. And so if, if you're thinking, that would be great, how do I do that? Well, there's one answer. <laughs> Sign up for community groups that are going to start in the fall. Um, but outside of that, I mean, be pursuing uh, times over meals with each other um, to share your stories. Because your story may very well be the kind of story that inspires faith in a brother or sister here. We need each other for this. So I think that's one of my questions to leave us with this morning is, uh, where in your life do you have the opportunities to share your stories and to listen to other people's stories? That you might mutually encourage each other, you might mutually build each other's faith up by the stories, by the ways that you have lived your life, the, the ways that God has worked through you. I think the other question I want to leave us with is, um, what are the ways in which our lives either are peculiar or might need to become more peculiar to reflect this life of faith that God has called us to? How are we a peculiar people? I want to read it one more time, uh, just to let it let us marinate in it this morning before we come to the table. But I want you to think about those questions. Where are you hearing and telling your own story of faith? And how are you a peculiar people? Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did, and by faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Now, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them 
and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been looking, thinking of the country that they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 